True or false, is your face melting? Yeah. You have to study really hard for that test. Yeah. <laughs> if the answer is true, then you have the disease. Yeah. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we help make sense of the statistics that you see in the headlines. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 53. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, I feel like it's been forever. I have definitely missed this. It was very odd to take two-week break. Yeah, so for anyone who hasn't listened to last week's episode yet, we have moved to every two weeks. But hey, I feel I feel very refreshed. We're here. We're back. Yeah, so if we seem more fresh than usual, it could be the week off, or it could be this beer we're drinking. It is a tasty one. A uh, little bit spicy, which is exciting. Spicy this week. So Dan, this is cool. So one of the reasons... Obviously, we started the podcast was we had this dream that people would send us free beer. Yep. And And that's happened before. The dream has come true repeatedly. Yeah, it's been a while, but this beer was sent to us by a listener. Fantastic. Yeah, this is... Who do we have to thank? Well, this is cool. This is from Lindsay Walton, and Lindsay is a chemistry PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill. And I met Lindsay uh, at the Triangle Com SciCon, so a... Uh, science communication Bimon, sci-fi con. <laughs> and Lindsay, besides being a listener, which makes her super cool, um, also has a connection to a new local nano brew called Dingo Dog Brewing Company in Carborough, North Carolina. We're down to nano brews. We were at Micro. What happened? Well, so apparently, I mean, Micro Brew is pretty big. I, I actually tried to find a definition of what constitutes a nano brew. And I don't feel like I need to define the relative scale of these breweries sure because yeah. our scientifically literate audience should know their, <laughs> their prefix units, micro nano, um, but I actually saw nano. There's really no set amount of beer besides less than micro and micro is actually bigger than you, you would think. But sometimes nano brew is synonymous with Pico brew, which kind of made me mad because those are not the same thing. That's like, a factor of a thousand different, is right? An, is an addo brew where you just like missed my, <laughs> you know, like you get a spritz of some something that they made? It could be, but so anyway, being a nano brew is between whatever we were and like Sierra Nevada, I guess. Oh yeah, that's right. That's a pretty big difference. Uh, so anyway, let me tell you. So this is from Dingo Dog Brewing in Carver. They're a brand new nano brew and they say from their website, they produce beverages from produce grown on site, which is cool. Um, and they use all their profits to fund Grants for local no-kill animal rescue organizations. That is cool. feel good about this one. If it were not burning my throat, I'd feel good about it. Did you say what it was yet? I didn't. Uh, so this is the Habanero IPA. Yeah, and it actually has habanero flavor. Yeah, let me tell you what I like about this beer. One of my pet peeves are beers that have some, have some ingredient in the title, and then you taste it. And in no way do you taste that ingredient. I think we've encountered that yeah, on the show before. The, the salsa beer that just doesn't taste <laughs> enough like salsa <laughs> What? It's a nerve. You've not heard of salsa I've no? never heard of that. We'll look it up. So I actually have had some of these spicy beers that supposedly have peppers in them. And, you know, you don't often really even taste it at all. And that that's kind of annoying. This one, you can taste the habanero. It's in there. Uh, but, you know, this is good. I feel like it's the perfect balance of 
of IPA flavor and spice. And I feel like I even get a little butterscotch. It's a beautiful flavor, a beautiful color, um, and just the right amount of spice. You have to turn up the air conditioning in here because I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> That's right. If we get the sweats. <laughs> uh, I've got a cup of water next next to my beer. Uh, but anyway, thanks to Lindsay, definitely, and thanks great. to Dingo Thank Dog Brewing for the free beer. And if you're out there and you want us to have free beer, we'll gladly accept it. We have not turned one down yet, I don't think. And if you're in the Chapel Hill Carboro area, check out Dingo Dog. All right, Dan. So um, I think you took the lead this week. You had something that, that you thought was pretty interesting yeah, you wanted to talk I, about. This, this news story has been on my mind a lot recently. Have you heard of a company called Theranos? You know, I don't, I don't know that I have. Is that like Thermos? Like the you put your hot beverages in? Or? So close, so close. Not the nope. same thing. No, no. You, you've heard of Theranos because they're making a lot of news. It's a health tech company that has claimed it's going to revolutionize uh, the medical testing industry. Oh yeah, they do like diagnostic stuff. Yeah, they you, had some kind of little thing that they made. Yeah, some chip type thing, and you're supposed to send a few drops of blood, and they'd be able to tell you every disease you could possibly get. Well, have you heard the more recent news about them then? They've revolutionized uh, no, the world no. of diagnostics. That is not not the case. Um, the Wall Street Journal Journal did some investigation and discovered that they were, um, you know, I, I think this is very common in startups. You were kind of faking it till you make it. You make sure that there's a market for the thing you want. So they were running a lot of their tests on traditional lab equipment, not new technology. Um, and they've been getting in trouble more recently with regulators, uh, so much so that uh, the CEO of this company has been like legally barred from running a lab facility for two years. But isn't it kind of weird? I mean, I've never heard of anything like this, but you know, they came to this conclusion and they didn't say you're not fit to ever serve in this capacity. They said for two years, yeah, maybe you're in not two fit. years, you're <laughs> in two years time though, go sit on the bench and then come <laughs> back and, and do healthcare. Uh, I will say Dan, uh, I had really not heard much about this until you brought it to my attention, but I was doing a little reading. So the CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, did you know she actually dropped out of Stanford at 19 to start this company? Wow. Isn't that crazy? That She's, is. Yeah, we talked about that a while back, right? Like these people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. So, I mean, she was this kind of child prodigy and actually yeah. her, it was one of her science faculty members encouraged her to do that um, and he actually ended up serving on her advisory board once she left Stanford and started this company. Well, I think that's why... And got, that was in that was in 2003, by the way. Right. That was a while ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. And I think that's why the part of the reason this company got so much attention early on is because it was this story of a person who dropped out and was revolutionizing the healthcare industry. And the promise was, we are going to take a few drops of your blood and tell you every possible thing that's wrong so that you never have to say, I wish I had known that I oh, was going to get cancer I see. So or this diabetes is, or... This is sort of like the blood test version of like 23andMe, like the exactly. genetics testing. I see. That was the, that was the promise. And I think um, now people are trying to determine, is there actually technology there? But this article I came across on 538 blog, hopefully you read 538. I love 538. It's I'm great. I'm a big fan. Nate Silver. Yeah. And, and the question that they asked is, do we actually need more blood tests? Regardless of the fact uh, of, is there a new technology here? Can they do it? Is it better than everybody else? Is this even a good thing if we screen everybody in America or around the world for these diseases? Yeah, I mean, again, thinking about the genetics testing, I mean, one of the big risks of that that, that people brought up were, you know, you test for everything. You know, what's your insurance company going to say? Who gets who gets a hold of that information? 
let's say you do find out you have restless ear syndrome and then you know your insurance company gets Thanks a hold of it up yeah <laughs> and then suddenly very they, sensitive about that my headphones barely stay on i know it's it's weird his headphones are like six inches from yeah. his ears but uh but yeah your insurance policy gets canceled because you find out you had this rare thing that you never would have known about otherwise yeah there are some of the privacy concerns but but the interesting part of this article and the thing that has had me kind of captivated is understanding the statistics behind doing these tests. And the reason I want to talk about it today is because I think the actual answer is counterintuitive. So you're going to see some numbers that seem like they're really promising and it's going to be a great technology. Um, but, but I want to walk you through an example where um, I think you'll see that it is not the result you expected. Did you know 48% of statistics are made up? Uh, I did know that. At least the ones on this show, probably true. Okay, Josh, I think it, it's best to do this with an example. Um, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? I love that movie. Okay, you know, at the end, they open the ark and everybody's face melts? Yes. Let's say that was a disease. Face melting syndrome. Face melting syndrome. Oh, I mean, it'd be Got a terrible... So Sounds bad. It'd be a really bad disease to have. Um, but you and I have just come up with a test that it is really incredible way of detecting face melting syndrome. So congratulations to us. Yeah, mine would be a multiple choice test. It'd be like, true or false, is your face melting? Yeah, you have to study really hard for that test, yeah. <laughs> if the answer is true, then you have the disease. Yeah. Uh, so let's say our test can detect cases of face melting syndrome 90% of the time. You feel pretty good about that. Okay, so 90% of the time, if, if you, you have, have it, it, we will notice. Our test will It'll find tell you. It. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and the other side of that coin is it's going to do a really good job. If we say you don't have face melting syndrome, uh, it will rule it out 95% of the time. So if we say you don't have it 95% of the time, you don't have face melting syndrome. All right, Dan, but I love probability. I love statistics. So, and I'm cynical, I guess, or pessimistic. So I'm thinking, okay, but you're telling me 10% of the time I will have it. And, and yet the test will say yep. that I don't have it That's or, right. Five percent of the time, I won't have it, and the test will say that I do. Yeah, I have to say I'm more concerned. I'm actually less concerned about not having it and getting a false positive. Because you're less concerned. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would probably be freaked out for a little while, but I assume there's probably a follow up secondary thing you could do that would take a little bit of time. But I think what would be more concerning to me is I get this false sense of security one out of 10 times that, oh, cool, I don't have it. One in 10 guys walking down the street, his face melts. That's it. Didn't know. Didn't know. Yeah. Could have known. Yeah. Did all he could do. So you, yeah, you might want to work on improving that first number, but there's another piece of information I have to give you. And then I'm going to ask you a question and I want to hear just your kind of intuition around these numbers. So if I tell you that 2% of the population, which is a lot, has like latent face melting syndrome genes or whatever, can you tell me what percentage of the time we get the diagnosis right? Let me phrase it a different way. If I tell you that you have face melting syndrome, the test comes back positive. What is the probability that you actually have it? So this is this is the mm. question about I've I've told you you have it. Now, you know, you talked about doing some follow-up tests and things like that. What's the probability that you actually have it? That I actually have it? Based on my test. Well, so I guess it's a really tough one. <laughs> well, I guess the probability ballpark for I don't need I don't need the actual answer. Just like I mean, are you 90%. Really, yeah, you're really likely to have it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what everybody thinks, and it's totally not true. So I want to walk you through why it's not true, and this is why this story is so compelling to me, because 
we read these headlines. I've got a test and it's 90% true or it detects 90% of the cases. And here's the actual, actual reality. So let's say we have a thousand people in, in our test group and we know that 2% of them have the disease. So that's 20 people that actually have face melting syndrome. Um, 980 people don't have the disease. That seems pretty reasonable. Uh, so we've got 20 people that have it. We're going to get 90% of those right. So we've got 18 people that test positive that have the disease. And two of those people, we don't catch it. Mm. And that was the thing you were worried about. Like the yeah. two guys walking down the street. Who's me. You don't have bad luck, do you? <laughs> You're the luckiest person I know. I, I, think. Have, I have great luck. I make my own luck, Dan. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So... Now let's get to the people that are, they don't have face melting syndrome. They're okay, so let's healthy. recap. So we had 1,000 people. Yep. 20 of them have face melting syndrome. They do. 2%, we said. Okay. So of those, well, I guess what I'm asking is why did just those get, did everybody get tested? Every, all one, so this, all is, 1, the, this got is the tested. premise of Theranos, right? Everybody gets a test. Okay. But only, let's say, 2% have it. So 20 people actually have it. 1,000 people got the and test. And 18 of those 20 people would get a positive result. You have it. Yep. Two of those, and it's true, 20, they do have, and it. they do. Two of those people would get a negative test, even though they do have. We it. missed them. What now? What about the five uh, percent of the nine hundred and eighty people who don't actually have it, but they're going to get a positive result? Do we care about them? Yeah, we sure do. So the people that don't have the disease, we're going to actually tell forty nine of them that they are positive for face melting syndrome. Ooh, so that's actually more people. Than so, actually had the disease. Forty nine of yeah. 49. So from a number standpoint, we were incorrect more than. So now you do the math. We got eighteen of them right, and we got forty nine of them that we told had the disease and they didn't. This comes out to twenty seven percent positive. So so I think I'm know, starting to see where you're going with this. This is the problem. So you do this screen on a thousand people, and you tell all you. I guess you you tell all these people that they have this disease. And only 27% of them actually have it. Now, that's fine if there's like an easy follow-up test. But if these people have to go on treatment or they have to um, have a, like a surgery or something to treat face-melting syndrome, it can have a huge cost. And, and not to mention the stress of thinking you're going to have your face melt. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I immediately start thinking about, all right, let's think about real numbers here. So if this actually came to fruition in the United States and and I just pulled up. So in 2014, there were 319 million people. So let's say 300 million people. Okay. And there was a disease. Let's use our face melting syndrome. 2% of that 300 million have the disease. Okay. So 6 million people have it, but that means that 294 million people don't have it. So if we have a 5% false positive rate, then that's 5% of 296 million, 29, 14, 14, million? 14 yeah, so about 14 million? or 15 million people <laughs> yeah. will have incorrectly, will incorrectly think they have face melting syndrome. Right. And then how many will we have actually gotten right of the people who had it? So that would be uh, 90% of the 6 million, which would be about, well, a little over 5 million. Yeah. So I guess so we got 5 million right and we got, 15 million wrong. Yeah. Ooh. And, and you know, if the treatment is particularly terrible, which in, in a lot of cases it can be, um, or the follow-up testing is really terrible, you can actually do more harm than good. And so the really important numbers here. So, 
you know, your temptation would be let's improve that 90% where we're actually detecting the disease. But the problem is in the 95% where we're saying, you know, 95% of the time we're confident you don't have it when you test negative. But that's the number that matters when you're doing these broad screens. Oh, man. And I said I wasn't worried about that. Can I change my answer? You can change it. The other number to keep in mind. So when you see these, these numbers in the headlines, this is what I want you to think about. Um, 2% of the population, we said, had face melting syndrome. If only half a percent had it, let's say it's more rare, which is still pretty common, you would have a 9% accuracy. So you would be testing, you'd still, you'd still tell 50 people out of 1,000 that they have the disease when only four and a half of them actually had it. So it gets even worse the more rare this thing is that you're screening for. Wow, so you're saying, so the more rare it is, the higher the ratio of wrongly diagnosed people to correctly diagnosed yeah, people gets. Yeah, it's these gets. three important numbers. And the first one we call the sensitivity. How sensitive is our test to detecting um, this disease? And then the second number is specificity. Is it is it just detecting the disease or is it detecting a lot of other things too? Well, and I'm thinking also, Dan, I mean, the original goal was not just to test people for one specific disease, but for an entire panel of different diseases. So you could imagine... Oh, good, and, more chances to win. <laughs> right, so any given person would actually become, would likely get at least one positive, whether they were... Yeah, right. If you test for enough, you keep rolling the dice. One of these things, you're, we're going to tell you you have. Probably. Yeah, and you know, that's, you know, from statistics, that's for the whole pitfall of doing multiple comparisons, right? If you do enough t-tests, eventually you're going to get a p-value of less than 0.05 just because you did, you know, if you do 100 t-tests, five of them will likely be less than... 0.05 just by chance. Keep going. Then that's you can the publish definition. it. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's or right. Or start a company. So, you know, I thought this was really compelling that it's, it's not just do they have the technology, but is this really something we want? And what I think this leads to um, in the medical field is, you know, the idea of Theranos is that you're doing self-testing and the danger is you're doing self-interpretation. So if, you know, we know about WebMD. I go on WebMD, I have cancer. It's a guarantee. But when you tell people you are positive, you're testing positive for this disease, they don't have a nuanced statistical understanding of what testing positive means. They think positive means positive. So um, I think it's a, it's a really dangerous road. Um, and there really is, I, I think there's a cost to this overdiagnosis. Have you paid any attention to the, the breast cancer screening rules? No, I haven't. Well, let me tell you. Um, in 2011, there was a review where they analyzed um, the actual effectiveness of doing routine mammography for women. And basically, they determined that in a lot of groups, it's actually possibly doing more harm than good to routinely screen. So some of the numbers for women in their 50s, which are more likely to have it. So now this is the number of what is the percentage of people that are really going to have a problem in that group. For every 1,000 women that were screened over the age of 50, over the course of 10 years, one woman's life would be extended due to detection of that thousand. Um, two to 10 would be overdiagnosed and treated for cancer that would have stopped growing or gone away on its own. Five to 15 would have been treated for breast cancer with the same outcome that they would have had if it had not been detected early. 500 would be incorrectly told they might have breast cancer. And 125 to 250 would undergo a breast biopsy. All of these things expose you to risk. And so they've been changing the recommendations on breast cancer screening for this basically statistical reason. Same for prostate health. And and well, actually I, no, I think I remember seeing some some headlines about you know the recommended age for mammograms was recently um increased yep. 
for people in their 20s and 30s and 40s, you know, hopefully this makes more sense now. When we went from a 2% prevalence of the disease to a 0.5%, you saw how the actual screening made things worse. Um, and this is what's happening. So in a, in a younger population where you are less likely to have the disease, now you are overdiagnosing more. Okay, so what's the answer? I mean, we want to know if we have a health issue that many health issues, early detection can be a really important component to treating the disease, like many types of cancer, for example. So what are we to do? <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough. The statistics don't actually help you out here, except I think they point you to where you need to look for improvement and how you need to interpret the results. So if we're looking at a population of people, it's easier for us to say, well, saving that one person's life may not be worth making 500 other people undergo surgery. I mean, I think that's very painful math to do and to mm-hmm. say that from a from a moral and human perspective. But that's what that's what the demographics tell you. Well, and and maybe one piece of the puzzle is going counter to what Theranos envisioned, which was let's screen everyone for everything. But maybe you're a little bit smarter about it, and you say, okay, you know what? I have a family history of right. prostate cancer or breast cancer. Maybe so the prevalence in sense. my group yeah. is 10%. Now we're talking about a really different math problem. Exactly. Wow, that, that's really fascinating, Dan. I wasn't aware of some of these things. Yeah, I think the thing that, that has me thinking about it is because it's not intuitive, not even easy to explain. Like, I don't know that I could explain it to my grandmother. And so um, we're making all these health decisions, but we're doing it without a true sense of the probabilities and I think we can make a lot of mistakes that way. Yeah, and you know, you really could see how a company like Theranos or someone else who's trying to pitch diagnostics do your PowerPoint presentation and you say, oh, we can predict this with 99% certainty. And Sounds the, really great. The negative rate is only, you know, even half a percent. But when we start thinking about actual numbers of rare diseases, it changes the, the yep. equation a little bit. You know, yeah, actually, and there are, there are tests that I'm sure and four nines and five nines and whatever. There are tests that are extremely accurate, very sensitive, very specific. And that's where we need to push the technology before we start screening people randomly. Yeah, and I think I think that's the key is this is not necessarily saying testing is bad, but I think you're saying indiscriminate blanket testing yes. yeah. so, leads to an issue. But if you have a reason to think, you know, and, and I think a good example would be, you know, think about infectious disease. If you're having symptoms... And, you know, your medical provider is trying to narrow down or figure out what's wrong with you, then targeted testing makes a lot of sense. And maybe that's really what it originally was designed to do. Yeah. If you're in the tropics, you know, if you visited the tropics, it might make sense to be tested for some tropical diseases. Yeah, get your Zika test. Yeah, did you have malaria? But if I'm sitting inside my house all day in, you know, Quebec, I probably don't need a malaria test. Although there is some probability that it would come up positive, right? Yeah, it sounds that way. You know, I remember this was this was years ago, um, soon after my wife and I were married, and, and my wife had this panel of tests done, and they tested her blood for like, I don't know, 20 or 30 different levels of things. And of course, you know, one... Some of them are out of spec. There's like a range, right? And I even remember the paper. I can remember this very, very clearly the way that the paper was formatted, the report was formatted, was it gave you the range, it gave you the number, and if the number happened to be outside of the range, it made that number red. And so there was this Ooh. one red number. It was like your potassium level or something random. You didn't know what it meant. It was a little bit out of that range. 
<laughs> and I remember she asked her doctor, okay, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, it's probably nothing or it could be a brain tumor. <laughs> but, you know, is that the alternative? Yeah. Nothing or a brain tumor? So, honest to goodness, Dan, so it could be nothing, it could be a brain tumor. Well, so then the obvious follow-up is, well, how do I, you know, I want to... Well, you can't ignore it then, right? Yeah, I mean, well, let's make sure it's... What kind of negligent monster a, would you be if you didn't go get follow-up tests? And, and so, the only way to determine that was do an MRI. That's and, you know, of course, you know, I was a grad student at the time and we didn't have a lot of money and insurance doesn't like to pay for just random MRIs. So it was like, okay, we can pay $500 and rule out a brain tumor because this one number was a little outside the range, or you can ignore it. But that's a lot to ask. It's a lot. And you, if the probability had gone a different way and it was a brain tumor, you would never have forgiven yourself for not doing it. I mean, so, of course. It's, it's a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And I think that's why the, the routine screening for things that are probably not risk factors, it really is not just the emotional distress. It's not just the invasiveness of some of the test procedures. Um, it really does cost a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dan, thanks for... That was heavy, yeah. That we'll, was, no, we'll that was great. That. Um, that really opened my eyes to some things. Um, and, you know, if, if anybody else has some thoughts on this or you've come across some interesting studies or maybe even bumped up against um, the trickiness of of intuition as it relates to probability in your own research, we'd love to hear about it. This is pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, I would love to have a biostatistics course that's based on interpreting news articles. Oh, like geez. biostatistics is all about like when I took it, it was all coin flips and, and chi squares, but take a news article and make sense of it. I think that would be a valuable uh, training in grad school. So somebody call me if you actually have found that. All right, Dan, it's been two weeks, but I'm tr- do you remember what the etymology puzzle was? What is an etymology? I don't know. <laughs> I had something I actually don't remember. Okay. Well, I've got it here in front of me. Of course you don't. The clue, la- the clue two weeks ago was this blood component loves the color of the dawn. Oh, it was this on purpose? It was a blood clue, and we talked oh, about I, blood testing. It wasn't, testing. but it wow. worked out, yeah. I love it when a plan comes together. How are you with uh, answers on this one? You know, I had a couple guesses that I actually told you off mic last time, and I was wrong. So yeah. I'm not even going to repeat them here. Whenever you see the word love in one of my clues, you can be pretty sure the P-H-I-L root is going to be in there somewhere. So the answer this week was eosinophil, and this oh. is a, a kind of a double-layered etymology. So have you ever done H and E staining? I have. Okay. So the E stands for eosin. Uh, eosin, right? And eosin is a dye. Now, what color is eosin, Josh? So that is the uh, that's the red and pink one. There's the hematoxylin is the dark blue, the purple one, and then eosin is the red pink one. Perfect. So eosinophils were named, eosinophils were named because they absorb the red dye. They love the eosin, right? Eos was an ancient Greek word for dawn and the name of the ancient Greek goddess of the dawn. So you see two layers there, loves the color of the dawn, eosinophil. I love when there are biological terms like these cell types that literally the name we use for them has to do with how they were originally observed. Yeah, this one reminded me of chromosome, which was, I think, episode right. two, color body, because it absorbed dye. Yeah. Could have been called... It's pretty cool. Could have been called Jim. This protein is called 30KB on the gel fitin. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you've got a future in, in product naming. I think it's catchy. Yeah, it is. Let me give you the clue for next week. Uh, and this is another summertime clue taken from my real life adventures. When walking through the woods, watch out for this genus of poisonous tree climbers. I'll read it one more time. 
when walking through the woods, watch out for this genus of poisonous tree climbers. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com and I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. Great episode. Good to have you back in the studio. It was good to be back, Josh. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, and here we are in our second year, and we really want your ideas for future topics on the show. So if there's something you'd like to talk about, either a big topic or something crazy that's happened to you in the lab, we want to hear about it. Email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or send us a tweet. We love to read those. If you like the show, leave us an iTunes review. That helps other people find the show, and we get a kick out of reading it. Again, thank you to Lindsay for the fantastic Habanero IPA. Uh, I've got my glass of milk right next to my yeah. <laughs> beer to cool down. My the... collar is drenched. My hair is drenched. No, 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 it's quite good. It's balanced nicely. Um, if you want to help us get some beer in the future, you can go to our website, hellophd.com, and click through our Amazon banner. Make sure your ad blocker is off. Buy something on Amazon, and we will get a small kickback that helps us with hosting the show. All right, Josh. Well, I will see you in a fortnight. See you in a fortnight. Is that true? What is a fortnight? A fortnight is two weeks. Is it really? I'm going to look it up. Fortnight is a unit of time equal to 14 days. It's on Wikipedia. So see you in a fortnight, Josh. See you in a fortnight.